And how, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord with all your, God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he walked by, came to the place and and passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave, him to the, gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have had. Which of these three do you think was the neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert in the laws replied to him, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. May God add his blessing on that reading of the scriptures. Uh, Will you come with me in prayer for Pastor Keith? Oh, Lord, our God, when we come in here and sing songs and listen to the words of scriptures read, when we drive from here to there in our community and We sing songs and say prayers and hear the words of your scriptures. We know that that your love is defined in the scriptures and you define in those scriptures who it is that we're to love and call all of us to be about loving them. This morning, Lord, you bring to us a story that so many of us have heard before, a familiar story. Let it not just pass by as... Pastor Keith speaks of it as something we've heard before and yeah, we know we have this, Lord. But let us look deeply into it, and as we gaze upon it and listen to it expounded upon, let it increase our faith and our practice of it. Let us ask ourselves, what of, what of myself do I see in this story? Lord, what, what, what do I see me doing about who I am in this story, and how will I encourage others to, to broaden their faith in the ministry of specifically and physically helping those who have been beat up, passed up, and are in need of being helped up? Lord God, the question in this, in this scripture says, who shall I serve? And, and to us it should be, who will we serve? Will we only serve ourselves? Or will we serve what we see and whom we see? Will we be called beyond just what we see to see the world beyond that and be called into service there? Lord, we, we ask that you help our faith increase, that because of Jesus, that our faith might be broader and deeper when we leave this place than we came. After all, Lord, you've given us an extra hour today. So we ask that you uh, bless this one, your son, our pastor, Keith, with the inspiration of your Holy Spirit. We pray this as he comes to speak now. Amen. So we look at the Good Samaritan. Probably, I would say, the most popular parable in the world, probably. Uh, it's probably a parable that, whether you've grown up going to church or not, you still know. Probably the only parable that I know of that has 
a law named after it. And it's a, it's a popular parable because it has so much moral truth to it and so much that we all can learn from it. And so when you come to preach a sermon about a parable that everybody knows, that everybody's looked at a thousand times, you have to really uh, question what would God say to us anew this morning. And I'm probably not going to say anything that you haven't already heard before or thought before, but one of the things I'd like to do is really look at this parable in light of the reason why Jesus told it. Why was this an answer to a question, and what does that look like? And as we dig into it, I think the first thing that we have to do as we travel back in our minds to when Jesus told this parable, and talk about the Samaritan, is ask ourselves, what is a Samaritan anyway? And really look at that. When you look in the Bible, you, you see encounters with Samaritans and different things, but can we really grasp the division that exists between the Jews and the Samaritans? How they lived in this close proximity to each other, but yet they hated each other so deeply that they wouldn't even, they wouldn't even like walk through areas of, of the geography that the other occupied. Now, and, and I think we can understand division especially three days before this election. We understand the divide that exists in our world. We understand how you can live in close proximity to to other people and have so much in common to someone, but yet when it comes to a particular issue, a particular candidate, or or a particular uh, perspective, there can be this great chasm that exists that can destroy relationships and cause people to not want to be friends anymore and cause people to not talk to each other anymore and not want to associate with each other. We can understand that, can't we? That's, that's a, a small taste of what existed between the Jews and the Samaritans. And I'd like to kind of explain to you a little bit about who the Samaritans were quickly. And, and I could have spent hours upon hours you know, down in the catacombs of our church, looking through the, the dusty books of church history and library. We, we have that somewhere, right, probably. Uh, but I just chose to go online anyway and thank God for the gift of, of uh, Wikipedia and Google. And I just typed in a search, why do Jews and Samaritans hate each other, okay? And I found this, this summary that I'd like to share with you now. Um, and, I, and I don't do this so that you think that I'm some kind of brainiac, because I didn't write this, I just copied it off the internet, okay? But I, but I want you to understand why this division existed, because it's profoundly important to understanding the, the nature of this story. And, and here's what I saw. It says, the Samaritans were people who lived in what had been the northern kingdom of Israel, Samaria. The name of that kingdom's capital, which was located between Galilee in the north and Judea in the south. The Samaritans were a racially mixed society with Jewish and pagan ancestry. Although they worshipped Yahweh, as did the Jews, their religion was not mainstream Judaism. They accepted only the first five books of the Bible as canonical, and their temple was on Mount Gerazim instead of on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. The Samaritans of Jesus' day were strict monotheists. In some respect, they were more strict than the Jews about the commands of the Mosaic law, especially the Sabbath regulations. But they did not share the strict Jewish structure against pronouncing the divine name Yahweh in their oaths. Because of their imperfect adherence to Judaism and their partly pagan ancestry, the Samaritans were despised by ordinary Jews. Rather than contaminate themselves by passing through Samaritan territory, Jews who were traveling from Judea to Galilee or vice versa would cross over the river Jordan 
bypass Samaria by going through Transjordan and cross over the river again as they neared their destination. The Samaritans also harbored antipathy toward the Jews. So the bottom line is this. The Samaritans and Jews had many things in common. And, but they had a couple of things that separated them. But to you and I, if we saw a Jew and a Samaritan, we wouldn't have a clue that there was any difference. But yet because of their, their religious differences and, and part of their ancestral differences, they despised one another so profoundly that they wouldn't even, the, the Jews would cross a, a river twice. They didn't have bridges. They just had to get a, find a way. Because they wouldn't want to be contaminated or associated with one another. So the fact that Jesus, in this parable of the Good Samaritan, elevates the Samaritan above even the Jewish priest to a Jewish audience is extremely significant. Jesus broadens the faith of the Jews to include a greater perspective. And he challenged the Jews to not view a person in terms of their race or their lineage or even their religious belief, but rather their character and their worship of of Yahweh. So how does this story broaden your faith? That's one of the things that I think Jesus is trying to do with this parable, is to broaden the faith of the hearers so that they wouldn't have this narrow-minded set of what it means to keep the commandments of God with certain people. Because that's what was going on here. Jesus sets the bar for us here with the type of service that doesn't seem rational. Why would Jesus give this guy, the lawyer, this parable as a response to a question? So if you remember what Pastor Mike read, a lawyer came to, to challenge Jesus and to question him about what he must do to be righteous. And, of course, keep the commandments, love your neighbor as yourself. But the lawyer, being a smart guy, it says that he wants to vindicate himself, justify himself, by asking this question, well, who is my neighbor? So why would Jesus give this guy this parable as a response? Well, think about it. The way you answer a question often depends on the motivation of the person asking the question, doesn't it? It could even be the same question. You could have the same exact question asked to you by two different people, and the way you answer it may be completely different. I'll give you an example. Let's say your spouse asks you to go do something on the way home from from wherever, and it takes you a little bit longer than it was supposed to because you got sidetracked doing something you really wanted to do, right? And when you got home, they said, hey, you were supposed to be home 45 minutes ago. You know, oh, I, I, I went to the store, I did what you said, but how fast were you going, Right? How fast were you going? Now imagine that same question, how fast were you going, being asked as you're pulled over the side of the road by a police officer. How fast were you going? To the one, you might say, I was going very fast. I was going as fast as I could so I could get home and, and, and show you that what you wanted me to do was being done. But when you're pulled over by the police officer, how fast were you going? Oh, well, I don't know. Maybe it was slower than what I was really going. Now, the truth is they have cameras now anyway that tell you exactly how fast you were going, right? Which is very handy, by the way, when you have teenagers driving in your house. Because when that little ticket shows up in the mail and they want to say to you, well, I wasn't speeding, I wasn't going that fast, you can say, well, here it is. You were doing this at this particular place at this particular time. Well, that must not have been me. They must have got it wrong. Well, there's your face right on the back of the, you know, there's the back of your head in that car, 
But how we answer questions oftentimes depends on who is asking and what their motivation is, isn't it? Right? And we could think of countless examples of that. So what is this guy's motivation for asking Jesus this question, who is my neighbor? Think about that for a second. He's got an ulterior motive. You, you know when someone has an ulterior motive when they're asking you a question. And that can change the way that you answer it. Because oftentimes we don't want to get drawn into what they're, what they're trying to draw us into. Now, Jesus understands what this guy's got going on. And this man asked Jesus the question, who is my neighbor? Not because he really wanted to know what it meant to follow God and keep the commands, but rather because he wants to vindicate himself from having to serve anyone other than people just like him. He wants to get out of that. He wants to find a way to do as little as he has to do in order to still meet the requirements to be righteous. So who is my neighbor? You know, we tend to define our neighbors kind of in proximity, who we live near. Typically people that are kind of like us. People who we've chosen to live next to and we've, we've you know, <clears throat> put ourselves nearby so that we can define who we'll live with and near and serve and be neighborly with, correct? <clears throat> we tend to do that. But Jesus uses this parable to broaden our understanding of truly who our neighbor is. He doesn't attack our idea of how we should treat our neighbor. He simply broadens our scope of who is our neighbor. And that's huge. Because the priest and the Levite represent the ideal neighbors. I mean, do you have anybody in your neighborhood who would say, oh, they're the perfect neighbor? <clears throat> now, you might define that differently than somebody else. For some of you, the perfect neighbor is the neighbor that you never, ever see. For some of you, the perfect neighbor is the one that you always see because you're friendly and want to talk to people, right? Now, for this Jewish lawyer, the perfect neighbor would have been a priest. It would have been a, a, a Levite. It would have been a, a, a person of high religious standing in the community, right? But yet, that's not who Jesus points to in this story, is it? See, the priest and the Levite were the best of the best, while the Samaritan would have been the last person this lawyer would have been associated with. Think about that. Most of us treat people we know and love and want to be around differently than those that we don't. Isn't it true? I mean, you could drive by somebody on the side of the road, broken down, and if you don't know them, regardless of how helpless they may seem, there's the temptation not to stop because, hey, you know, I don't know that person. I don't know that. They, that's, this could be a trick. They could be waiting to ambush me if I stop and help them. But if it's someone that you know, then no matter what they look like, you know, you might even stop and help them. We, most of us treat people differently that we know or that we want to be like. And Jesus wants to show us, really, that that's a different way of understanding what it means to be a neighbor. Think about this. Who do you do ministry to? And who do you do ministry with? And who do you receive ministry from? <coughs> The command to love your neighbor as yourself is not to be understood as an exclusive command, meaning only your neighbor as you define it or would prefer it. As Jesus shows us here, being a neighbor is not about proximity, where they live, or even common belief. 
It's missional. A neighbor is a person who intentionally serves another. So according to this parable then, who should you serve? Who should you serve? The answer is anyone in need. Anyone in need. Whoever is in need. Now, I'll be honest with you. Oftentimes, I stink at that. I stink at, at, at serving anyone who is in need. Because like you, I've served plenty of people in my life who later I found out were just lying to me. Right? I've served people who later in my life didn't meet the criteria of honesty and transparency in talking to me about what their need was. So they, you know, I've, I've come to a place sometimes where I just have this wall that goes up. You know, it's hard sometimes, especially, you know, in, in, the, in the ministry world, because as Vicki and Mike could tell you, people come in here all the time that, that have needs that they want us to serve. And oftentimes those needs that they present to us are not the needs that they actually have. Now, people don't lie about the fact that they're needy, but they do lie sometimes about what they really need. Sometimes I think it's because they don't really know. Sometimes people come up to you and say, hey, I need this. I need, I need, you know, I need food. And in our rule kind of here is that we'll usually give a person the first thing that they ask for when, when, when it's what we really think they need. Okay, so if someone comes up and says, hey, pastor, can you help me with some food? The first thing I'm going to do is walk them over to the food pantry that we all support and say, yeah, there's food over here. And, and, of course, we've all done that many times. But it's amazing to me how, how oftentimes on the way to the very thing that they told me they needed, I get a different story. Well, that's great, but I really need, you know, $100. Or I really, I really need this, or, or I really need that. That's kind of sometimes how you figure out what a, where a person's at with their need. And what you discover as you spend more time and dig deeper with people is that their need is a lot bigger than some cans of food or a $20 bill. Their need goes deeper into their soul. It goes deeper into their very structure of how they live their lives. And as Christians, we are to see those people in need and to help. And to help. To not put barriers around people and say, well, I'm sorry, let me ask you a a quiz first. Are you a Republican or a Democrat? Are you a Methodist or a Baptist? Do you believe in this or do you believe in that? Did you grow up in this place or that place? And if you answer correctly, now we'll serve you. Now we'll give you what you say you need. That is not how we are to operate as Christians. The scripture clearly teaches that we're to serve whoever is in need. Now, how should we serve? How should we serve? According to this parable, fully, completely, and selflessly. Do you ever put limits on how much you'll help somebody? It's natural to do that because we have limited resources. You know, I can't give a person endless supply of what I don't have, can I? So we have to, at some level, put a limit on what we have because we can only give what we have. But really, is our attitude to give to a certain point or is our attitude to give as much as required? See, this is the kind of giving that Jesus talks about in this parable. The Samaritan paid the cost at the time and, catch this, he promised to meet the future needs. 
He said to the innkeeper, whatever more expenses you incur, I will repay you back when I return. That's a level of service that, that many people don't understand because we tend to say, I'll help to go this far, but no farther. It may seem impossible to do that. But Jesus gives us a little more insight into this type of service. In, in Matthew's Gospel, for example, he says in chapter 5, verse 40, if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if someone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You know, this is the phrase, or this is where the phrase, go the extra mile, comes from. And the idea being this, that don't limit Don't limit what you'll be willing to do for someone to meet their need. Now, like probably every parable that Jesus tells, this parable has characters in it. And it does so so that we are invited to see ourselves in this parable and to to, to try to figure out how we would fit into this parable. So I'm asking you today, to whom do you most relate to in this parable? Maybe you relate to the Good Samaritan. Maybe you're a person who's found the joy in giving of themselves and serving, and, and you've discovered that the secret to contentment and happiness in life is to not make your life about your own needs and your own desires, but rather to, to help others. You've, you've learned that, and, and you've experienced the joy of selfless service. Praise God for that. But maybe you feel more like the man beaten on the side of the road, left for dead. Life has been rough for you, and you felt like no one has been there to lift you up. You felt like the world and maybe even the church has passed you by, and people that should have come to your aid have, have abandoned you and looked the other way. Perhaps, maybe, the truth we're told today you would mostly relate to those who did pass by. Maybe in your heart right now you feel the sting of the conviction of the Holy Spirit that there are those in your life that you've been challenged to help but have said no to for one reason or another. You know, the truth is, there's probably moments in your life, maybe even moments this week, when you'll pass through all three of those characters, when you'll you'll experience that, in a variety of ways. But the point is this. This parable is not given just so that we can have like a better like mindset to go help a hurting person. As important as that is, that's not all that Jesus is doing here in this parable. It's not just a parable that says, now go and be nice. Go and help somebody. See, that's why the world loves this parable, by the way. The world loves things that tell us to sort of go and help a nameless, faceless person, Right? But this is more than that, you see. Because this parable was given as an answer to a question. And the question was about what must I do to inherit eternal life. It was a question not about earthly morality, but about a spiritual reality. So the answer to that question has to have some truth that applies to that as well. And I believe that it does. I believe that this parable helps us to understand and put into practice the gospel Jesus is teaching us about selfless service that goes above and beyond not just your friends, but your enemies. See, everybody's easy to help those that we know that are our friends. It's easy to do that. 
But the picture of the gospel is a picture of someone who goes the extra mile to help those who nobody else would want to associate with, the outcasts of society. Not even that, but the enemies as well. There are people in your lives you don't want to associate with, and then there are people in your lives that hate you. This is who God is challenging you to help and serve and showing you as a picture of the gospel. Who is the ultimate good Samaritan? Of course, the answer is Jesus. Jesus Christ, he is the picture of the good Samaritan. This is a parable about him. And if we, if we minimizing it by just saying it's about just some kind of let's be nice to each other, then we've missed the greatest part of the parable. This parable is more than that. It's about Jesus. You see, we are the ones left and beaten on the side of the road, left for dead because of our sins, with no way to, to, to help ourselves. We're the ones that are, 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 are there dying. And Jesus comes to us while we are unable to do anything for us. But get this. At the same time, we are his enemies. That's a powerful thing to recognize about the gospel. The gospel isn't just that Jesus does a good thing for you, right? We get that. There's t-shirts that talk about that. But what we don't understand and fully grasp is that he did what he did for us while we were still his enemies. You say, well, I've never been an enemy of God. Yes, you have. We all have. The Bible says that he came to us as his while we were his enemies, Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is a picture of the gospel. Because of our sin, we were dead in our trespasses. Jesus Christ, while the world passed us by, came to us. And he picked us up. And he put us on his own donkey. And he carries us to the place of healing. Now I know what many of us have heard and many maybe of us have thought, well, you know, church, I'm not going there because I'm not good enough. Right? You ever hear somebody say that? Oh, I can't go to church, pastor. I'm, 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 the lightning would strike if I walked through that door. <clears throat> I'll, I'll go to church. Someday, maybe, once I can get myself figured out. You ever talk to anybody like that in your life? Who, they know that they have a spiritual need. They know that, that they want to get back on track with God. But they've convinced themselves that they're so unworthy that church can't be for them. Right? But what do we just read? Jesus Christ came to us while we were his enemies. And, and those of us sitting in here, we all know that church isn't for the perfect people. Because if it were, every one of us would walk right out that door. Amen? Because none of us deserves to be here. None of us can stand before God and say, yeah, can you believe those people? None of us can do that because we were all enemies of God while he saved us. We were all opposed to God. None of us have lived up to God's standards for our lives. None of us. And and we miss the boat completely when we think that church is only for those who've already arrived. Right? Reminds me of Back in my glory days as a wrestler in high school, I've told you guys some of these stories, but I use the word glory uh, very loosely there. 
But I remember when I first started that, I was, you know, 15 years old and decided to go out for the wrestling team. And part of that was going to lift some weights, right? Now, standing in a, in a puddle of water, I was 104 or 105 pounds, okay? And walking into the weight room with my buddies, of course, and they're slapping these big plates on the, side, on, the, on the weight bench, you know? And I'm like, all right, I can do that, you know? Get down there, you know, can't even move the thing. And, and so I start working out with weights that are appropriate to me, and it's like I have, the, like, the pink bar or something like that, you know? And it's like, no, you can't do anything. And I remember feeling so humiliated by that, right? And I was like, I don't belong here. I don't belong here. I don't want to be here. Because I felt exposed. I felt like, oh my gosh, I'm a, I'm a weak, small person. I can't hang out in here with these people who are so, you know, strong and powerful. I don't belong here. And I remember telling my coach that. I said, I can't, I can't, I can't go lift anymore. Why? Like, because I'm so weak. And he was like, Nestor, you don't lift weights because you are strong. And I thought, wow, I'm going to use that in a sermon someday. (laughs) Right? I promise you I didn't think that. I probably went, oh, yeah, well, hey, that makes some sense. But isn't that the truth about following Christ and about coming to church? We don't come to church because we're these spiritual giants who always get it all right. We come to church because we need grace. We come to church because we need mercy. We come to church because we are weak. We come to church because if we don't have the grace of God in our lives, if we don't have the presence of God in our lives, if we don't have the word of God in our lives and the family of God in our lives, we will fall flat on our face in a moment. I know that's why I come. You see, the gospel shows us what the Good Samaritan is all about. He picks us up. He carries us to safety. He pays the ultimate price. And there are no limits to the love of God. There are no limits to what Jesus will give or do to care for you and to care for me. And what I think makes it even more interesting is that Jesus could have called this parable the parable of the good Jew or the parable of the good priest or the parable of the good Levite. He could have called it that, but he called it the parable of the good Samaritan. Because he wanted to identify himself in such a way that would make people stand back and go, wait a minute, you can't do that. Oh, wait, you just did. He wanted to so broaden our understanding and get our minds off this idea that it's only people that we've decided we can love and, 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 and serve that matter to God. He broadens that. He broadens it. So let's bring this back to the original question. Who is my neighbor? Jesus asked the man after this parable, who was a neighbor to him? Remember that? He didn't say who was a neighbor. One is a noun and one is a verb. You see, this man and others who are wanting to vindicate themselves want to use the word neighbor as a noun, but Jesus wants us to use it as a verb. Think about that for a second. It's the whole idea of being versus doing. Is this person your neighbor? Or will you go and neighbor that person? 
Will you use that not just as a noun of who you are, but will you use that as a way to motivate you to serve? Because in that way, by what you do, defines what a neighbor is. A neighbor is missional. Kind of like forgiving someone a set number of times versus being a person who forgives. Or kind of like asking Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? So that I only have to really worry about that one versus being a person who doesn't really need the commandments anyway because your heart already belongs to God. Religious observance always asks how much, to whom, and for how long. But the gospel always answers whatever it takes for everybody for as long as necessary. Don't you thank God for that? Don't you thank God that he didn't wait for you to get your life straightened out before he came to die for you? Don't you thank God that he didn't just, just, just take you part of the way to safety? Don't you thank God that, that when you were brought into that place of healing that he, he told the innkeeper, I'll pay anything it costs on my way back? Oh, It's powerful when you think about the imagery of the gospel contained in this parable because that's exactly what Jesus does with with this. He, He shows his followers and he shows all of us that there he stands at that altar with the innkeeper right there saying, this is what it's going to cost and whatever it takes, I'll pay for it. I'll pay for it. That's what he did on the cross. That's what it means when he looks at his disciples on the night that he was betrayed and he breaks the bread and says, this is my body broken for you. This is what Eucharist means. It's a word that means thanksgiving. And that's what we are to do when we come to receive the body and blood of our Lord here today. We are to receive with thanksgiving what God has done for us while we were still his enemies. Will you do that today? Will you do that? He gave thanks and he broke this bread and he, he turned to his disciples and said, take and eat. This is my body broken for you. This is also what it means when it says that he took the cup and in the same way he gave thanks for it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, now take and drink. This is my body. This is my blood. Aren't you glad that he didn't just stop with one? Aren't you glad that he gave both? Aren't you glad that he said, I'll pay whatever it costs, every last drop of what I have and who I am is available for you for your healing so that you can be rescued from that ditch on the side of the road where you find yourself. When you come forward today to receive communion, I want you to do so recognizing exactly who you are in this story and exactly who Jesus is. And I want you to come forward today in thanksgiving for what Jesus has done for you. I want you to remember what it's like to be in need and to remember that that's exactly where you found yourself before he saved you. Communion in the United Methodist Church is open to everybody. We want to model Jesus by not putting walls around who can come and who can't come. And, and we want to say to people, whether you go to this church or some other church, that, that's not our business. Jesus is available for you and to you here today. The only thing that we ask 
is that you come with a desire to meet the living Jesus. And if you do, he's promised to meet you here. Promised to meet you here.